Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Jessica Outlaw, VRAR behavioral scientist and experienced researcher for Extended Mind. We talked to Jessica about what it's like to bootstrap your own applied research career, her work with research in VR and the gaming sector, how she builds and executes a research project, advice on how to adjust from academia to industry, what's the perfect team composition and the value of a social scientist, and she ends by giving advice for people starting out on this career path. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome everyone to The Human Show. Today we're talking to Jessica Outlaw, a behavioral scientist who works for a company called The Extended Mind. Oh wait, it's your company, right? Uh, yes, I founded the company. So she has founded the company, The Extended Mind. Correction on that. So our first question is, how would you define insight? Oh, I mean, I think... I think the best insight would be something counterintuitive that people didn't know before about how a product or an experience is being used. And what has been your path so far in the kind of work that you're doing today? Let's see. I was a sociology undergrad, and then I ended up doing work in clinical research. I worked in healthcare for seven years in the Bay Area. And I really loved doing research, but I didn't want to do medical research anymore. So I started looking at graduate programs, and I found a judgment and decision-making program at UC San Diego that I was really excited about. And so I enrolled in graduate school there, and I was really interested in, the, in all of the theories, like sunk cost bias, opportunity cost, um, how do you make a good decision, Uh, I took a lot of classes in economics and psychology while I was there, and I just loved learning everything about about people who had taken an analytical lens mm. to things that we do every day. So I finished my master's in 2014, and I moved to Portland. I started out doing some pretty standard user experience research for web products, But about a year after that, I started doing some demos with some virtual reality app. And I just saw there was this huge opportunity to leverage all of my behavioral science background in how people were designing these apps. So almost immediately, I stopped what I was doing and started working exclusively with virtual and augmented reality companies. And this is what led you on the path that you are on today with your own company, right? Yeah, so now I'm an industry researcher. So there's like a couple big projects in my portfolio. Last year, I ran a qualitative study of 13 new users to virtual reality. I was really concerned that people just didn't understand the value of qualitative research. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I just decided to bootstrap my own report about how to do a qualitative study. 
And so I was really transparent. I published all of the methods along with the results. And I did like really, really in-depth interviews. People would come to uh, demo VR. I'd interview them for 20 minutes before we started. And then they'd take a 30-minute demo of a social VR platform. And then I'd interview them for 30 or 40 minutes afterward. And the whole idea was to get really, really deep insights about their experiences and to collect their stories. And then I turned that into a more comprehensive report by aggregating all of the insights. So for people who are trained as, you know, sociologists or anthropologists, like, it's very intuitive that that is a valid way of conducting research. But a lot of the people who I'm working with, they come from the gaming industry and they've never read a user research report in their life. And so I was really trying to bridge that divide and show the value of doing really, really in-depth interviews with a small number of people and show the amount of insights that you could take away from it. So I organized the paper in a way to talk about what were the technical challenges, what were the social challenges, and then what were the challenges that people had in terms of self-expression. And then there's this other opportunity to talk about what people really, really wanted and felt was missing from the experience. So I've gotten a lot of good feedback on that. I was invited to speak at one of the big developer conferences in the industry last year to share the results. And from that, I've actually been invited to do other projects as well, like um, a 600 person survey of how people use virtual reality on that right now. So I'm really just trying to bring these existing, you know, methodologies that, you know, social scientists are so familiar with into the virtual reality space. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Backtracking a bit, could you just tell for our listeners a bit more about your company? Oh, okay. So a little bit about my company. I called my company The Extended Mind because I really wanted people to consider all of the things that influence the way that we think. So for example, having a smartphone changes the way we think. It changes how we use our memories. The temperature of a room can affect, you know, whether or not people believe in global warming. When people gesture, it can be a shortcut for their cognition. And so those are the types of questions that I really want people to be thinking about when they're building these immersive 3D apps. And so The Extended Mind, it's primarily a consulting firm with clients in San Francisco and Seattle. And I myself am based in Portland. I have so many questions about VR and gaming because this is a field that I personally find extremely fascinating. And I've spent the last three weeks wrapping my head around a methodology to research impulse games for a company here in New Zealand. So I wanted to ask you if you've had any experience doing work in VR in the VR space itself. Oh, so for example, I did a project for a San Francisco social VR company, mm -hmm. and we did the final presentation inside a virtual reality. Oh, that's cool. What about research, like researching players as they play in VR? Oh, yeah. So that would be the qualitative study that I just described. Oh. So I was in the room while people were using virtual reality, like that was their 30-minute demo. And you were in the space did. with them in the demo, or it was not a social virtual reality environment? For some of the participants, I joined them in the space, but for other participants... I just sat in the room with them. And so there was this element where I was trying to observe how did people new to virtual reality? One of my research questions was, how do people like interact with new people? And so I wanted to give people the opportunity to imagine that they were on their own and to observe the interactions that they had with other people. 
another way that I can answer your question is I did provide recommendations from a social science perspective on how one particular client could increase engagement among Mm -hmm. its users. Mm -hmm. And so for that, I probably spent about 40 or 50 hours inside of their platform using virtual reality, talking to the other people, being embodied in one of their avatars. And that was another example of like gathering that information to provide that back to the client, to make recommendations to the client. What would you say would be the minimum time unit for you for a project? And I know it depends on the question and on a lot of things, but when it comes to this virtual reality space, if somebody, if a company comes to you and say, I want to understand why my players drop out in the first five minutes of playing this virtual reality game, what would be the minimum time unit that you would use to design a methodology? I think that if that was the theoretical question, I mean, I think that would be something that you could do relatively quickly. Like Mm -hmm. you could set yourself up to just have a a day of testing and bring in through six or eight people and try to get the answer from those six or eight people and how and observing them. I should also mention, like we're, we're talking a lot about the gaming applications, but virtual reality does offer a lot of other Mm-hmm. Uh, uses besides just gaming. Yeah. So pe- there's a lot of people who are using virtual reality for work, especially people who work with 3D models. Mm. Architecture firms are using virtual reality like setups in order to have meetings and have di- design reviews. It's much more efficient because built focus on building the model and now they don't have to build a 100-page slide deck to describe what the model looks like. It has so, so many uses, right? It's not it's not yeah. just for gaming. I could tell you that from my perspective when you say a day my uh, anthropologist heart just jumps out of my chest <laughs> with anxiety <laughs> at the idea of of researching somebody or observing somebody doing something just for one day Um, and you know I know part of it is training and the stories that you're told and the practices that you learn to do what you do so I would assume there are a lot of other anthropologists like me listening to this that would maybe have a similar reaction Uh, but I know that for the business field it's quite important that you are able to show these proofs or these insights fast so, right. And I, well, that would be like my data collect. That would be my day of data collection. Mm. I mean, there would be more time to set up the study, yeah. to develop the research questions, to recruit the right participants. I mean, I have to be really careful about who I recruit because yeah. a lot of people it takes them a really long time to figure out how the controllers work, and so it, it's so recruitment takes a long time, and then analysis also takes a long takes a while on the back end. Yeah. So in, in so total, how much you would say would be a project from beginning to oh, end? Oh, I mean. I think like a short project would be three to four weeks and, you know, a longer project with more intensive questions could be yeah. two or three months. Okay. Three to four weeks. It's, it's still, I think, for a social scientist used with uh, or anthropologist used with coming from the academic space where you get the luxury of spending months on fieldwork and years to write something down, it's quite a big change. So I was wondering from your experience of of working in that space, what can be some things that facilitate that transition, you know, that get you to be more comfortable in this fast-paced environment? Oh, give yourself deadlines. (laughs) When I worked in... When I worked in industry and like when I was doing like standard UX research for websites, I usually had a seven to 10 day turnaround. And yeah, if you only have seven or 10 days to do it, you get it done. What are some of the challenges that come with that when you are designing a process? 
Well, I think the thing is, is that like in academia, there is, I mean, like I was in academia for three years mm. as, a, as a graduate student. Yeah. And so like what is valued in academia is not the same things that are valued in industry. Mm. And so very rarely did any, has anyone in industry questioned a methodological choice that I've made. Like I'm always really proud of my methodologies. I'm very <laughs> transparent about them. But I know that most people in industry don't care. Yeah. They want to know what the insights are. Yes. And so I've, I've never been worried like, oh, can I defend this choice that I'm making? Yeah, yeah. You know, in front of like 10 people who could decide if I'm going to te- get tenure or not. Yeah. Like that's just, like the stakes are actually much lower. Like people have a business need. They yeah. come to you for help. Can you help them? Yeah. Did you get that right away when you started doing business projects or it took a while for you to kind of make that shift? I think I've been lucky that I've had people I've worked with in industry either like or just as clients. They've been very transparent Mm -hmm. that what they value is a clear recommendation from me. So then you took it on board early on and um, you just moved with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what what would you say then, because when we speak to people who we have a special area which we talk to, which is intervention, you know, intervention, especially in anthropology, is something that it's not necessarily part of the way you learn how to do um, research and designing intervention and you having that power to say, I think you should go here or I think you should go there is something that doesn't come so naturally. So I was wondering in your case, how do you work with designing interventions and passing them on with clients? Oh, so I mean, I think storytelling is really one of the best tools that you can use for communicating with your clients because, for example, in this social virtual reality app that I was working on, there was a question about how do you make people feel like they're welcome and people, how do you make people feel like they're part of a group? How do you teach people how to behave once they're there with you in virtual reality? And so we relied a lot on storytelling. So I particularly told a lot of stories about what my very first week of undergraduate was like, because <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things that happen. You're sorted into a group. You start spending a lot of time with the people in your group. Maybe in, in the United States, it's really common to go camping with, with a group of people even before you get to campus. Mm-hmm. So it's this whole idea of like you're away from everything and it's this opportunity to bond. You create stories and memories together that then you can go back to when you see each other, even if it's a month or a year later. At my school, like everybody got t-shirts and like your dorm had a different t-shirt than the regular school mm-hmm. t-shirt. What we did is we drew on existing stories that people knew and could relate to about like when had they felt senses of belonging. Mm-hmm. And then we made recommendations that leveraged those. And then we also talked a little bit about like the social science theory. We talked about collective effervescence, which is definitely only sociologists talk like that. <laughs> but <laughs> people started to understand it in the context of their previous experiences. And how far do you go with the design of that intervention? So for this particular client, they did all of that on their own. It was more that we gave them recommendations that something was missing. Yeah. And we recommended that they design it. Um, The scope of the project didn't allow for that. So for example, there's a specific social virtual reality app where they hide the menu choices. So in order for you to see all the options available to you on the menu, you have to find a particular arrow and you have to click the arrow 
So you have to know that you have to click the arrow. You have to be capable of clicking the arrow. Mm -hmm. And then you actually have to do it. And you have to remember all of that while you're trying to think of what you were trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, the intervention exposed all the menu choices. And for me, I don't care how it looks. At the end of the day, it's creating such a cognitive burden on people yeah. that they forget what they're trying to do. I hope that's a good example of designing the intervention. Like, it doesn't have to be crazy. You don't have to have gone to design school. As a researcher, you can identify the problem and you can come up with, like, suggestions on how to fix it. Yeah, yeah. And there's these are large teams and there's other people that can, you know, finesse yeah. over the exact location of what icon but I feel like it's more important for me to represent the voice of the user and say, this is a mm-hmm. problem. So what would be the composition of, of a team that you work in this role of the voice of a user? And what are the other competences that are in the team that need to come together to kind of deliver th- at the end the final product? I think the bare minimum would be having a designer and a developer. So a designer to really figure out like how things should look and really pay attention to like that user experience and making sure that the aesthetic is going to match everything else in the experience and then a developer to execute on that. So I think that would be a very bare bones team. I think if you're on a larger team, you'll have artists because a lot of these spaces you're building like 3D worlds and mm-hmm. you need to have objects and they have to look good. So yeah. artists are really valuable. And then having people there thinking about content and thinking about the copy and how to make it a seamless experience is also really helpful. Like what is the content that users want to engage with? And then how do you communicate with your users? How are you giving them instructions? And what's like the overall look and feel of your experience and is the copy supporting that yeah and i would imagine that especially for games that need to have like such a huge narrative effort behind them that role becomes quite important right yeah it does and then if you're on like a larger team let's say you want to have a game or you want to have an experience that has like artificial intelligence to be like the first level of customer service to someone Mm -hmm. so then you would have to have like machine learning people there to program in you know the standard customer service responses if an anthropology or a social science student wanted to go into like your sort of line of work what advice would you give them I would start with getting experience with people who are nice to work with, because I think that's really, really important. Like, I I really value the time that I had working on web stuff, and I learned a lot from the people who I work on web stuff with. So even though um, working in e-commerce was not, like, the most exciting thing I've ever done, (laughs) it was still really, really valuable experience to see how the process works. So I think take opportunities to work with nice people is really, really good and build up a portfolio of work there. I think there's a lot of opportunities to apply social sciences inside of the design process. Um, IDEO and the the Stanford uh, Design School or the D School, they put out a ton of publications and a ton of case studies. Mm. So I would always encourage people to read those to see how the act of like listening to people and representing their voices can impact the design experience i think even your own um your own path into this it's quite inspiring for somebody that is in school right like just bootstrap your own project and use that as a as a starting point for a portfolio 
Yeah, I would encourage that if people are capable of doing that. I also want to acknowledge that I was extremely privileged to be someone who could bootstrap it. I know Mm -hmm. that there's many people out there who are not in a position to bootstrap things. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it's something that I can do because I was privileged enough to do it. And that's because I had lots of other client work who was keeping me busy. I think that if we say, you know, you have to bootstrap in order to do well in this industry, that would create barriers to people who don't have the same privileges that I do. On the other side of that, why do you think businesses should give these students the opportunity? What would be the value of having a social scientist on your team? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is that businesses spend a ton of money developing experiences And you aren't regularly showing the experience to your target users. You don't know if you're building the right thing. So in terms of what give a business a good return on investment, if you are incrementally testing your experience, it could be a web experience, it could be a virtual reality experience, it could be gaming, it could be architecture, it could be real estate. If you are incrementally getting feedback from your users on a regular basis, then you will have more confidence that you're building the right thing. Because the worst situation for a business to be in is they've spent, you know, $10 million in a year developing a product that no one uses and no one wants to use it. And that happens all the time because businesses are not paying attention to what the actual user needs are. They're just executing without stopping to consider you know, who is this for and what problem is this solving? This is a theme that comes back to us as we speak to other people as well. And I know from my own corporate experience, I just think it's interesting that inside a corporation, the focus is on completing a project, you know, giving birth Mm -hmm. to something or make something real. And there's all that rituals and hype and excitement around building and very little around, you know, what will happen with that product when it goes into the real world? How will people engage with it? Especially at the start, right? When you're building it, it's just focused on all the efforts of making that thing come true rather than having a very healthy balance between creation and destruction. (laughs) And it's quite hard when the organizational culture and the processes around that are geared towards creation, not towards balancing creation and destruction. Well, I would also say it as researchers aren't going to destroy the project, (laughs) but but researchers are going to influence how the product gets made. And so so you really need to be working with people who care about the end user because if they only care about executing their vision, then no matter what the research says, they're not going to change. Yeah, that's all very, very valuable advice. And, And I think that a lot of this, it hits you once you start going through it. I think it's very valuable for anybody that is considering a job in the industry, you know, being that kind of champion of the user's voice inside an organization, because there's a lot of challenges that come with that. Thank you so much for for being with us on our podcast today, Jessica. We really enjoyed your perspective and the kind of work that you do. And we hope our listeners will too. Thank you. It's my pleasure. One more thing for our listeners. We'll put a link to your website and also any work that you want us to share with them. Great. (laughs) Have a nice day. Okay, you too. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.